Rinse podcast. We are kicking off volume 12 with issue 551, talking about Off Peak, the Norwood Suite, and Tales from Off Peak City, volume 1. Joining me, Ryan Zhao, in issue 551 are Chris Worthington. Hello. Hey, welcome to the team. Thank you very much. James Carter. Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure to join the team finally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's good to have you back from your firing hiatus, we should say, uh, which you take at the end of every episode and sometimes in the middle of them as well. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and uh, and Tom Kohlfeldt. There's a whale on the ceiling. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of things where they don't belong in this, in this issue, I think. Oh, we're going to have a fun, fun time. Anyways, I'm going to give a light spoiler warning for this one. These games are a little bit more experiential than they are narrative driven, but they do have underlying narratives. I find more of the joy is just in kind of being in the spaces, but there is a story if you really want to get involved in it. So I'm not going to say that knowing the story beforehand is going to ruin your experience, but um, perhaps some of the visuals and some of the surprises are uh, best experienced yourself. So um, yeah, I would, I guess at the beginning of the show, I would highly recommend uh, each of these games. And at any point, uh, you're very welcome to pause the podcast and uh, play through these quite short and quite uh, digestible games and, uh, and rejoin us on the other side. So anyways, these are a trilogy of games, a little bit more on the obscure side than we typically cover, and especially to uh, kick off a new volume of the show with. It's pretty exciting. But uh, these are three games in particular that mean a lot to me. These three games are developed mostly by one person, a musician primarily known as Cosmo D. Before producing the three games that we're going to be talking about today, he produced a game called Saturn V in <laughs> June of 2014, based on an Archipelago song. Cosmo always had kind of a background interest in gaming. He regularly hosts tabletop role-playing sessions and some online role-playing, role-playing game types of sessions as well. So, you know, that that influence has definitely always been there, but it was never really his professional pursuit until his musical work started to get a little bit too comfortable. And I know that sometimes the creative types can get that itch in the back of their mind to mm. try uh, try new things, to explore new challenges. So he viewed it as kind of a necessary left turn in his career. NYU's Game Center, uh, which our Jesse works at. Uh, was a big kind of cultural and educational force in New York City and kind of an alluring ground to explore these game design aspirations within. So we'll hear more about some of the specific influences that he took later on. But basically, he is one of those designers who just kind of fired up Unity one day and figured out how to use it and took an interest in creating spatial places to explore that represent the music that he was interested in creating. It's a it's a bit of a weird, weird series of games. Genre-wise, I would call them first-person exploration adventures, sometimes endearingly or derisively called walking simulators. I think this fits in very well with that genre yeah. of games. There are some very light puzzle elements, usually kind of fetch quests and lock and key type puzzles. That's mostly kind of an exploration-based uh, progression system. As far as uh, something I don't have written down, but I think it's worth mentioning, uh, just broadly speaking, the we'll get 
far more into this later, but the visual presentation of these games are of a certain type. Uh, they're kind of hard to describe. I would say that they are, and this is this is going to sound rather mean. I don't mean it that way, and I will immediately walk it back. But I'd say that they are intentionally ugly, as in there's a lot of elements that are, I think, created to exhibit kind of a campy garishness or a a sense that not all the pieces fit well together. Let's lay some personal groundwork with our own histories. Um, just to be brief here, I discovered Cosmo D. I think there were games that I had seen peripherally, but I'm not typically into the visual style. I think they kind of put me off at first until I really got into them. Tales from Off Peak City was added to the um, humble, what do they call it? Not the humble, the humble trove. It is an extra set of games that you have access to while you are a humble choice subscriber. And uh, yeah, I played through Tales from Off Peak City, immediately fell in love with it, found it to be one of the coolest games that I'd ever played. I immediately rushed through the other two games as well. You know, I, I just couldn't get enough at that point. I replayed Tales uh, and found some additional content that wasn't in the EXE that I downloaded. So I was pleased to find that in post-launch updates, they had added even more stuff. So yeah, I just kind of came to it through Humble. Uh, what about you, Chris? I don't have a lot of history at all with these games. So the, I, the first I heard of them was you, Ryan. You mentioned you played <laughs> something from the Norwood Suite on Sound of Play many, many years mm-hmm. ago. It can't have been long after the Norwood Suite was released, probably 2018-ish. Uh, and that was the first I'd heard. Now, now, since then, I think it's it's probably fair to say that prior to the Norwood Suite, Off-Peak didn't get a huge amount of uh, mm-hmm. airspace on the usual websites. Well, the, the websites I visit anyway, the likes of PC Gamer and Rock Paper Shotgun, that kind of thing. But the Norwood Suite certainly did grab the attention of of the various reviewers there, and there's been various articles since on both the Norwood Suite and Tales from Off Peak City. So over the years, I have seen various things. Uh, Kotaku as well, I think, did a feature with Cosmo D a couple of, probably about three years ago. But I, I was put off a little bit. I always get, when when people tell me something is surreal, I find that a bit off-putting. I mean, I, I enjoy it when I find things surreal, but if someone says, oh, you should watch this or you should play this because it's surreal. Or like like a Twin twin Peaks or something. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? Like when someone tells you something surreal, you your perception of what you're about to watch or play or listen to is skewed because you're expecting it to be strange. So it kind of put me off when I read these things about this surreal world of that Cosmo D has created. So I always thought, which sounds interesting because it's definitely my kind of game, but I never I never felt compelled enough to play it until I seen that little section on the big list, the little the, the item on the big list, and thought, oh, I'll stick myself down for that because I, I need an excuse to play it. And here I am. I've gone in very deep over the past month. I've gone in very deep on all of Cosmo D's stuff and really enjoyed it. Excellent. How about you, James? I guess my story is going to sound something like Chris's, to be honest. Um, I definitely heard of the Norwood Suite, uh, but I had no idea what kind of game it was. And then, yeah, it's mostly uh, speaking to you, Ryan, and hearing you talk about these games. Again, never really picked up what the games were like. Hadn't realised there was a link between Norwood Suite and Off Peak until you mentioned it. 
but just thought, you know what? Yes, absolutely. I'll check this out if it means we can we can cover it on Caden Rinse. That seems a cause worthy of doing it. So yeah, over the last uh, week and a half, the week, couple of weeks, um, I've played through these three games um, all on Steam Deck and uh, started the um, the. I guess the next game, uh, Betrayal at Club Low, um, today, although we won't be covering that necessarily in and of itself today. Thank you very much. And what about you, Tom? Um, I, yeah, quite similar. I think I just, the Norwood suite did bubble up in websites and podcasts in around the time. And I li- I do like, you know, arty stuff in game like i i just i have a soft spot for creators that that go by feel and um i think i just got the the vibe that the norwood suite was was sort of that that you know in that thing although it is you know very very accomplished kind of um space and everything and design wise so i checked that out in mid 2019 and then Ryan got excited on the Slack that someone else, anyone else, had played the, these games, <laughs> and and just sort of started getting excited about the idea that there might be enough of us to to actually cover them. And so, in the just in the last week, I checked out um, Off Peak and Tales from Off Peak City, and uh, and sort of yeah, completed the the trilogy and uh, in preparation for this. All right, sounds good. Let's dive into the first of these three games. Off Peak was released. On February 15th of 2015, uh, this was not Cosmody's first game. Of course, we talked about Saturn V, and this one definitely kind of follows in some of the some of the footsteps of what he established and learned um, with that particular game. Reviews and awards, uh, this only has user reviews. It was not reviewed from any of the major outlets that I could tell anyways. Um, user reviews, uh, I picked up a 6.6 from Metacritic and an 8.3 from IMDb and 87% on Steam. So again, all user reviews, not a not a blinding amount of people uh, reviewing this one, but uh, I should mention it is free on Steam if you are interested. It is uh, PC Mac Linux only, as I believe all of these games are at this point. Uh, so the scenario, just to briefly cover, and of course, this is not the most important part of the experience. It is more of an experiential journey than a narrative journey, but you arrive on a train to an enormous, larger than life train station, <laughs> an upsettingly large train station. Uh, you want a, a ticket to, uh, to Rowayton, a man named Luke with a large <laughs> head and long fingers Luke. offers you his ticket, but notes that it accidentally got ripped up and fell out of his jacket all across the station. So standard kind of, you know, collect-a-thon, fetch quest types of, uh, of setup here. Um, if you want the free ticket, we have to find all the pieces and put them back together. Uh, Marcus runs the train station. It operates very well at his command, but uh, the workers kind of fear his exacting nature, and there's friction between him and the labor unions. He fancies himself a curator, not allowing all businesses into his train station, but just those that he deems to be right for his customers. Um, the circus is another faction we hear about in hushed tones in this one. The circus has an arrangement with the city to perform many major functions while they're in town. It is kind of a traveling function, but the giants that they have at their employ don't end up doing the work that they promise the city, causing things to not function. When the circus is around, it's kind of this uh, privatization of public good not being followed through in this case. 
It sounds like the circus who has a lot of money bribes the city for these types of jobs. Um, the circus mistreats the giants, but also bankrolls their leisure. So I think we'll see throughout the series themes of employer types of relationships that are exploitative, but also have benefits that mean that the people who are kind of indentured to them don't necessarily want to rock the boat, but they're also not entirely happy. There's a lot of kind of uneasy relationships with employers in these games. And then uh, after completing the ticket, we are stopped on the platform by Marcus and the other merchants. Uh, we are confronted from stealing from their shops or not stealing from their shops as you can choose to. Well, we'll get more into it. We are told that we must work for the ramen stand, but a large woman in an orange dress named Muriel steps in. Uh, she spirits us away with a glowing cow skull, and we awaken in a rowboat piloted by her and the mysterious triplets we encounter on our adventure. She welcomes us to the circus. The ending is essentially the same if we don't steal anything, though we are given an achievement for doing this. I'm sorry, everyone who has not played these games, or even those who have, that all sounds like nonsense, but uh, <laughs> uh, I think we will start to unpack some themes, but I would say for the most part, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, any kind of particular points about the scenario or any of the kind of set dressing before we get into the actual kind of themes, motifs, presentation that uh, you feel would be helpful to establish up front? Uh, it, it's, it's just functional uh, uh to, to to kind of pull you through into all the different spaces and so in that way i i in a in a, ge in a very gentle way i didn't care about any of the characters per se like i didn't care about the story but i cared just enough to see to to want to see all the different places and having you know the little MacGuffin or something to kind of carry you through, and yeah. then it all fits in the absurdity of the whole place. So yeah, it's it's a nicely nicely done, but but didn't leave a mark in my brain as such. Yeah, I didn't think first impressions were all that great because it's very dark at the start, isn't it? You know, you 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 come off this train mm -hmm. and you're met with this, and it's almost like a silhouette of this massive train station with the entrance up ahead of you, and, and then you're given what appears to be a pretty monotonous fetch quest. And I was thinking to myself, well, here we go. I'm going to be traipsing around this environment now, trying to find these scraps of items that are going to be difficult to find and hidden away. Now, it's not like that at all, but you don't get any of the, although there's some pretty cool music at the start, you don't get any of the things that are really great about off-peak until probably after the first five minutes. And I imagine it would be easy to bounce off this free download game pretty quickly. Because it, it does take mm -hmm. it does take those five or ten minutes to once you get into the train station proper, then it all opens up and you you've got all of these visual and and all of the lights all around you. But, but for, right at the start, it's a bit like mm, I'm not really sure about this. And there's, there's and there's a reasonable amount of text as well from talking to Luke and then the group that's just outside the entrance. You know, you have to wade mm -hmm. through that before you really get to the good stuff. Yeah, this is the thing. For people who are starting out fresh, I would recommend that they start with the Norwood Suite or Tales from Lothbrook City. Yes, I agree yeah, with that. Yeah, definitely. Just um, I that. think that they both have really strong openings. Agreed. Um, even though this, the, one of the first songs that you encounter in this game, even before you get into the train station, is probably my favorite in the series called Frog Phone on the, on the soundtrack. Really, really solid. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. It's uh, really yeah, good. I'd say, yeah, the opening is probably the weakest of the three, but I I do like the first impression that the 
actual train station itself gives it it is kind of cast against this 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 deep red sky kind of like a yeah. sunset but kind of an otherworldly sunset in the background and all you see is just this black silhouette of this enormous train station which it reminds me a lot of the framing of the i think it was the infernal train from alice yeah. madness returns uh this this train that was stylized like a uh like those italian cathedrals you know there's something that is church-like or is kind of religious or is like a like a basilica you know it's like it is a larger building that it needs to be it feels somewhat divine in its appointment it's yeah it's, it is very strange but it, it it makes a striking visual impression anyways i think there's also um something to so i'm quite glad i played this first because I think it actually it set me up for the other two games quite well, yeah. where I, I completely agree the opening is is the less impactful of them. But the fact that the the setup is so obviously thinly veiled as, yeah, this is a game, just go and get the things you need to get to, to do the, you know, do the thing. Just go and do the thing. Walk around. All of your collectibles have got little sort of bubbles or coming off them. Go and grab those. They'll be easy to Thank spot. Thank the Lord. <laughs> what that means is you're because of the nature of how these have been scattered like who tears up a a ticket and then drops pieces at every different (laughs) corner of a train station (laughs) it 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 makes you realize that there's some other stuff going on here and the point is just to go to every corner of this train station and see what you find there and whether that's from a story point of view to say okay my interpretation is look spread these around to put you in positions where you would catch Marcus's attention and that would create a point of friction for you requiring then you to be rescued at the end of it um it, you start to realize no that there is an intentionality here and that speaks to the train station itself as well which is laid out like a museum or an exhibition would be where i'm thinking of like to get to the the top floor on the roof essentially um to find one of the pieces you have to go up this staircase yeah. and this the staircase leads you up picture to picture to picture all the way up in the way that a museum does it, it you know yeah. you don't move around i guess the other example sadly is ikea you don't get to move around that in the in the most efficient way you move around it in the way that they mm-hmm. have laid things out to be seen and so the notion that you've been asked to go to every corner of this train station and some of those routes are controlled means that you are being directed not just by Luke's ridiculous quest but also by the layout of this environment that as you say Ryan is a far bigger space than it need be although train stations often are um, I think possibly just because well because at first reasons of historic importance but also for noise reasons you want a bigger space where noise can be kind of not all you know condensed and concentrated in one area yeah but but what it means is that it doesn't seem that ridiculous that you've got almost like a little food court here and a little record stall set up here and games sat out to play because those are the sorts of things we do with those spaces like shopping malls or train stations or things that are big and need filling with stuff to do get filled. Um, and, and this train station is no different from that. Uh, I thought yeah. it was a really interesting play, sort of space to, 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 dis- uh, to explore. Just going back to that that idea of things being slightly off and weird as well, like there is something really spooky and not right about certain places at night, isn't there? You know, you think about train stations, mm-hmm. 
even hotels, schools, like swimming pools. There are places like, have you ever missed the last train coming out of a city? Yeah. I, I have quite a few times mm, coming back yes, from yes. London to Kent. And like you end up having to just sit in the train station all night. And it's really weird. This place, which is so busy during the day, becomes this weird, weird place full of strange characters and weird goings on. <laughs> You know, and it's like when we were in school, if you ever, if you ever like doing a production in school or something, you went back after hours and the school was empty and oh, yeah, it would just creepy. turn into this really strange place. And I think setting this first game in, in a train station, what feels late at night with these strange characters and strange vendors around, it just, you straight, as soon as you walk through those doors into the train station, it feels off. Does anyone remember, weird. you know, in the 90s, like black games that had either black skies or, or black sky, you know, yeah, large areas of dark right? skyboxes, just from technical, like Tomb Raider, when you go into the Lost Valley and you see the T-Rex for the first time, if you have a yeah. crap PC... You know, there's the fog of... It's not the fog of war. It's just the blanket of darkness and the yeah, sky's exactly. black. And it's not yeah. supposed to be. You know, in the remake, it's all broad daylight or whatever, in anniversary or whatever. Um, but it just gives it this creepy feeling. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and I, and I, I love that he kind of gets there in this, even though ostensibly he doesn't have those technical limitations or the limitations are presumably just his own time yeah. that he, he cares to put into changing it or, or polishing it or, or whatever. But it definitely, yeah, harkens back to both those real-world spooky spaces or, or spaces in different contexts, and then the the games that, through technical limitations, can you know live large in my memory as a gamer. I would say that this particular game uh, exhibits less intentionality in its visual design than some of the later ones. Refinement as he gets better at his craft. There's a lot of visual art that I think he found very interesting and I find very interesting as well. Uh, it's kind of plastered all over the walls, kind of as posters or as banners or whatever. There's board games that are larger than life <laughs> kind of sprawled out on the floor as well, which actually board games is kind of a reoccurring motif in this game. And I can't quite suss that one out other than knowing that it's a personal interest yeah. of cosmos and of course you know he takes more board game influence in betrayal at club low later on but at this point early on it's such a mechanically simple game um i don't really know what board games were thematically doing there they're in all of them they're they're in all of the three games because there's, there's people playing yeah, weird, that's, that's weird not yeah. actually chess in the norwood suite and then there's the group that's you true. deliver a pizza to in in tales yeah, I'd say it's more of a uh, more of a personal interest, probably bleeding over yeah, than something so, yeah. that has, to me, probably a ton of like thematic yeah. resonance to, as compared to some of the other uh, thematic elements that are brought up. Uh, I'll say with regard to the, there are some kind of tunnels and some areas that become a lot of these games have open hub areas that kind of filter into more kind of linear tunnel based areas, and uh, as I was. Uh, talking with him before recording, uh, he mentioned a few kind of early 2000s games that inspired him, like Deus Ex, System Shock 2, Vampire the Masquerade, Bloodline, Stalker, Jedi Outcast. These are sprawling, twisted levels with a with a ton of kind of bold architecture, a lot of height, a lot of space, uh, twists and turns, no mini-map. And thinking back to it, like 
the Norwood suite does feel like a Jedi outcast level, mm. you know, it, it feels like a kind of unnecessarily like twisty and, you know, hallway, but like not in the bad way. Like I think we, in the modern age, or at least in the Xbox 360 age moving forward, we became very wary of hallways in yeah. video games because, you know, we viewed it as kind of taking away agency from players. It is a time when players just press forward and do nothing else. But in a game like this that is so structured around pacing a self-guided exploration, hallways are incredibly valuable. And then there's a reason why you see them in museums. And there's a reason why you see, you know, museums and spaces like Meow Wolf um, or even, you know, theatrical experiences like Sleep No More kind of narrowing in the explorable space from time to time because like it does create a, a change in pacing. Mm -hmm. It it creates kind of a narrowing focus where you can tell a linear story through kind of environmental mm. details. But yeah, overall, I think we're going to see a lot of these elements improve as the series goes on. One small thing that I noticed in playing off peak twice back to back once to refresh myself and then once to do a no no stealing run, which <laughs> you mentioned a lot of the uh uh, a lot of the places that you encounter throughout the train station have records that you can just pick up and take with you. They have pizza that you can ostensibly eat. They have cookies that you can take. You know, all these things that are uh, that have this bubbly aura coming off of them that are so alluring to just, uh, you know, pique your curiosity. They do nothing. But at the end of the game, everyone confronts you like, hey, you're going to pay for all that, <laughs> right? But um, if you do a no stealing run, you get the same ending. It's just they say like, well, you didn't steal anything, yeah. so, but you're you still got to work for us, you know. I mean, it's a funny joke about the fact that he he intentionally doesn't animate anybody to move, does he? So there's just these these yeah, vendors yeah. who aren't going to chase after you. There's no there are police or authoritarian figures in these games and in Off Peak right at the beginning, but no one's going to. And it's really freaky because of the way the heads yeah they fix all onto watch you, you yeah, but no Weird. one's going to move. <laughs> to get you no one's going to come chasing after you and then later in tales he does do some sort of jump scares slightly jump scares or sort of repositions people as if they are following you and and sort of plays with that but in this earlier stage it's it's a sort of you know no one's yeah everyone is static and moving in some weird way or bits of them are moving and later and later on that's a thing he loves to do isn't it he loves to animate either give them a weird and woozy animation or just like animate yeah. their hands doing yeah. something extremely strange or their or their head their their head moving from side to side to the beat or something like that um something really mm -hmm. otherworldly and creepy um without anyone going anywhere no one walks i don't think i can't remember I don't think we ever see anybody move. Yeah, exactly. In, throughout the whole of the three games, do we? No, and that's and and, and you, you say, oh well, that's just a you know single developer learning Unity. He's just making it easy for himself. Is is the really cheap, crap way of explaining that? And then it actually becomes a feature. It, it really grows into a sort of part of the aesthetic. It's a creepy yeah. thing. It's a you're safe in these spaces but they never feel safe ever 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 no. um, but also what why can't both be true like yes it's a technical yeah, limitation because yeah. it avoids the the need to animate the characters that you've developed and learn at learn the the kind of pathing and the the actual you know mechanics required but also 
probably my most memorable moment from these three games going forward is going to be the moment where you go up onto the roof, go and collect the um, the last part of the ticket, look at the whale through the window and talk to the woman up there and then come back to the top of the stairs and the three triplets oh, are there. Yes, and I was yes, just like, yeah. nope, absolutely yeah. not. Turned around and walked <laughs> the opposite direction and looked three times back and forth along that roof for another way off it before I went in there. I was absolutely, terrified is not the right word, just so unnerved that they're standing there. I know they're going to be blocking my way because they can't move. And I didn't want to, I, because, and especially because you've got one standing at, blocking the stairway and two others just heads peeking around from the side of the doorway. It's just, it's so unnerving. Mm-hmm. And, and arguably it's the same thing at the end of the game where you know no one should be following you because no one moves. Uh, you go down to the front of the train and then it just pivots you around and everyone's there. And that's a proper, like many games have used that as jump scare tactics. It's just creepy when people can just mm. be there because mm, yeah. you you don't see them move and yet they're there. So mm. almost opposite to what you were saying, Thomas, although I completely uh, appreciate your point of, you know, they can't move. So in theory, you're safe, but also that they still then do move is really unnerving. So when you go back to a yeah. place and the people aren't there, it's like that that's wrong. They, they should <laughs> be there because they can't move and yet yeah. they're not. So the last point that I want to touch on with Offbeat before we move on to the other games is the music and sound throughout the series. And we see this refined throughout the series. There is no uh, voice acting in any of these games, but um, all of the characters, I don't want to call it like Banjo-Kazooie type of language. They don't do the whole like, you know, they do like a, they do like a musical instrument version of that. So each character will have an instrument associated with them like a, a a cello or like a steel drum or something like that and then each time that a word of theirs appears on screen kind of typewritering in from word to word then one of those musical tones will play always kind of mm. in tune with the background music as well it, it's, it's really yeah it's very I mean, it's cool not the first time that i've ever seen it before but it is very yeah. very good such an evocative way and then all of the text kind of appears as if it was uh, floating in the air beside the characters, which from time to time means that it can be somewhat hard to read depending on the angle you're viewing it from or what is in the background behind them. But, you know, just with, with some small concessions, like it is such an effective way of, it is so original and so like unique. It feels very comic book. But all of that works together to create such an evocative yeah, it, feeling. Yeah, it actually places the words in the environment in a way that, you know, uh, there there have been times where there's like uh, like titles or or subtitles sort of projected onto a side mm-hmm. of a wall or or you know there, there's creative ways of doing that. But in this case, it ties those words to the person more than having them just at the bottom of the screen in different colors or whatever. And the other thing they do is they change the size depending upon whether they're talking to one another. We're talking to yeah. you. So you immediately mm-hmm. know that a conversation has started with you, even if you don't see the heads kind of swivel around and turn to you, which is odd, yeah. but, but happens. You just know the difference instinctively between whether you're observing a conversation. And this particularly comes up in uh, Tales from Off Peak City, because at the very beginning, part of the tutorial is you can eavesdrop on conversations. They create that, they make it a mechanic instead of just a a stylistic Mm -hmm. thing uh, to denote what's happening. They say, no, Mm. if you get too close, people are going to notice you and start talking to you. If you hang back a bit, you can observe the conversation they're having. So again, it's it's a, it's a, 
a stylistic choice initially that then becomes a mechanic later on because, again, like the technical limitations, okay, work with the technical limitations. Did you draw the railway station slightly too big? We'll work with that. Did this character just get drawn slightly too big? Well, I'll make them a giant giant and that can be a different type of person <laughs> and part of the circus. And I don't know which came first, but I kind of like that I don't know which came first because it keeps me on, on edge yeah. again. Yeah. the same way yeah it juxtaposes with there's a lot of writing there's a lot of signs in these games and books and sheet music and and, yeah. and posters and stuff like that so the to have the dialogue be so distinct you know have such a distinct visual mm. style but it's not the only written words in the in the game and he, he loves signs he loves random signs and that's something that i think he shares with Davy Reed and, and uh, William Pugh and the Crows, Crows, Crows guys and Stanley Parable mm-hmm. guys of just playing with playing with all of that stuff, basically. Uh, just the distinction between dialogue and then whacking great signs and cheeky signs and graphic design and fake things and letters that look like they're contracts or, or different types of um, you know eviction notices and stuff like that. So text plays such a huge part in these games. And I think to have the dialogue visually so distinctive and and you just you associate that now with cosmo Cosmo d if you played even one of his games that that font the colored lighting and it kind of coming out of their face is such a him kind of uh, trade sort of visual trademark now um and it's hard it's hard to do that it's hard Mm -hmm. to be such a you know visually distinct creator that you can create that identity the only drawback for me about the the words being in the environment and you having to look at them, certainly in the first two games, I, I, I'm someone who likes to make sure that I've read and seen everything that I possibly can. So if I was to approach some characters and they're talking and I wouldn't necessarily know it was the start of the conversation or where the end was, so mm. often I'd sit there and I'd go through two loops of the conversation. And I do appreciate that this is just a me thing, but it, I found that in both Off Peak and the Norwood Suite that I was often like, I was like, okay, well, I've, I've read this now, so I've obviously been through a whole loop. Whereas in Tales from Off Peak City, he obviously he addressed that because he, and I forget what he does, whether it's an ellipsis or it's something a else. Circle, it's a little circle arrow. Um, that's right. Yeah. And that tells you that that conversation is finished and it's about to loop again so you yeah. can walk mm-hmm. away. It's like a little quality of life thing he introduced. And and it, it, I found it really helpful to know, okay, well, I've seen everything there is to see here. I can now go off. Mm. Yeah, it, it's literally a little sort of repeat or loop symbol that you would get on, say, a, a right. music app yeah, or something like that. But, yeah. but you're right, in Norwood Suite, the ellipsis comes in and that tells you, okay, that's one part of a conversation finished. If you recognise the start of the next bit, well, yeah, then exactly. you've already seen it. Um, so, yeah, it's just mm-hmm. an evolving, evolving uh, aspect. But, but yeah, and it's interesting that, you know, the the repeated kind of background dialogue from um, NPC characters it is, is so often raised as an issue. I've heard this line hundreds of times. Why are they saying yeah. it again? You know, Skyrim being the obvious uh, culprit there. Um, but the fact that he still chose, like the idea being that these these conversations will repeat because they can't just sit there in silence. You need for the atmosphere of it to still have these characters speaking, but also rather than just 
have it playing in your ear all the time through a 60, 80 hour game. It's yeah. no, the, the, as we said, it, each game is a slight development to allow you to say, right, I can no longer pay it. I no longer need to pay attention to that. I'll go elsewhere. Um, and it, it doesn't feel as intrusive, even though it still gives that background suggestion that the conversation is carrying on, even though you, the player, got out of it what you needed. And now there's no reason to do so. It's for the atmosphere. So musically, most of the music in this game was pre-existing Archipelago music, not composed specifically for the game. The game was created to represent kind of the visual spaces that Cosmo had in his mind uh, when listening to the music. So future games have a little bit more of a complicated relationship between composition and design primacy. A lot of the times the space was created first and music was created to accompany the space. Sometimes the music was still produced on its own and spaces were created around them. So that uh, that relationship does grow a little bit more complicated as the series goes on. But at this point, each of these songs were standalone songs before the game was created. And I would give a hearty recommendation to this soundtrack in particular. Mm. All, yeah. all of them are yeah. wonderful, but this one it's is banging. probably it's absolutely, my favorite, it's fantastic. I'd say. It's yeah. fantastic music. It's not... So- <laughs> It's not subtly implemented in the in the kind of interactive sound department in that you you walk from space to space and you del- you can fade in different tracks quite easily it's not it's not subtly woven through it they you know he bangs you over the head with this music but it's absolutely brilliant so it doesn't mm. matter you know and it gives again it gives that it adds to the otherworldliness of the space that the music is so loud often disembodied or or strange or you just see a whacking great speaker you know Mm. vibrating with the sound of it to just say there's music listen to it (laughs) if you walk away it will stop (laughs) so let's move on to the next game the next game is the norwood suite around the time that he was creating this he started receiving mentorship from robert yang is a kind of a long-term figure within the indie space but might not be so well known within the kind of mainstream gaming industry uh, you might remember some of his works like Rinse and Repeat or Hard Lads or We Dwell in Possibility. He particularly credits Robert during the production of the Norwood Suite with basically teaching him how to effectively use lighting to evoke moods. So, you know, the difference between like a well-lit room, a moody club, a cozy restaurant, a creepy hallway. Uh, we start to see lighting used a lot more masterfully in the Norwood suite and each of these spaces taking on a more kind of like contiguous but differentiated feeling from one another if that makes any sense those are contradictory terms the Norwood suite was released on October 2nd of 2017 uh, reviews and awards wise it has a metacritic of 78 only from four critic reviews still fairly under the radar at this point a 7.3 from 12 users on metacritic as well steam has 96% positive reviews from 396 users. So again, a pretty wide spread between these different platforms, but generally from the space that has the most reviews, it tends to be very positively received. Just to briefly go over the scenario, uh, we are dropped off in front of the Hotel Norwood by Muriel, the head of the (laughs) circus, one of the the, uh, groups that we met in the first game who gives us the vague instructions to stay the night at the hotel and to kind of integrate ourselves with the other guests. The hotel is hosting a rave by resident DJ Bogart that (laughs) evening. 
ultimately we are tasked with assembling a costume so that we can we can kind of infiltrate the DJ Bogart rave to give Bogart a demo CD that we receive from Muriel. We try to give DJ Bogart the CD. He's in the middle of his set, so we have to unplug <laughs> all of the speakers, which causes the entire party to kind of grind to a halt. Uh, we get punched in the face by one of the angry party goers or maybe one of the guards or something like that. DJ Bogart is pissed afterwards, comes and talks to us. We say, hey, sorry about that. I've got a demo CD from Muriel. Uh, he takes some interest because I guess he has some history with her. We give him the demo CD, which plays a numerical code, which activates some sort of a self-destruct mechanism in uh, DJ Bogart, who turns out was a robot. <laughs> um, this seems to have been some kind of assassination quest or something similar. But again, don't worry too much about that. It's mostly about the experience. But we can start to see some kind of like common names and some similar factions start to pop up and some similar themes and repeated ideas. But for the most part, don't worry too much about it. It's funny. I, I assumed it was a rescue quest because the uh, there's a door slides open and one of then your two sort of handlers in um, the, the next game walks out as though freed from somewhere, I assumed. But that was just my interpretation of that ending. So, To give some background details, the Norwood Hotel, Hotel Norwood, is named for a musician and composer named Peter Norwood, who was kind of a musical prodigy. He had this uh, he had this collective, this band of uh, fellow talented musicians, and together they were very successful, uh, at least successful enough to fund a hotel. <laughs> and ultimately, the fallout of those relationships is what's going to motivate a lot of what happens in the series going forward. Um, this ends up being a very pivotal part of the of the continuity. Peter Norwood is a little bit of an artistic eccentric. His most famous composition is called the Norwood Suite, uh, which is a pun because the exclusive room in the hotel is also called the Norwood Suite. So there's a bit of a uh, nice little linguistic trickery going on there as well. Um, but the Norwood Suite on the piano is this piece that is apparently so difficult to play that anyone who tries to play it will badly injure themselves and so it's kind of it's kind of left up to your interpretation whether it is just like a needlessly difficult song or whether there's some kind of like a supernatural element to it almost like a cursed piece of music i think it's probably more likely to be a play on the monty python joke you know joke that makes you laugh so much you die and and there you know the joke yeah. becomes incredibly precious to the army and they and they read it out they translate it into german and read it out as they run across the war zone and stuff like that i think it's just a surreal gag essentially uh, is, is how i take it anyway i don't think there's a sort of deeper meaning there's no deeper meaning to me but that doesn't mean there's not a deeper meaning as we progress throughout the game and solve more of its puzzles we unlock, as, as Tom mentioned earlier, some of these hallways that always kind of lead us back to other parts of the hotel, Dark Souls style, kind of creating shortcuts and connections between uh, the different parts of the, the map. But they are kind of laced with tableaus of um, kind of mannequin-like displays of the history of uh, Norwood and his band, uh, which apparently, despite their success, it seems like he was a really hard driver of a... Uh, of a band leader 
It appears the others were driven away by some of his exacting nature and Mm. how critical he could be of his other bandmates. Again, a lot of this is interpretation of still scenes without dialogue. So, you know, I'm doing perhaps a little bit of, uh, a little bit of projecting, but, um, but yeah, you got the sense that like he was a, he's a difficult man to work for. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, I, you certainly, there's a series of letters as well, isn't there from Gabe? That's that, true. That, yeah. sh- sh- that shed some light on that for sure. Uh, he, yeah. You get the feeling that he's this, he's the old school, you know, he's, he represents, you know, the, almost the classical uh, and, and he gets people who are fanatically devoted to him, but ultimately he ends up pushing them away or they end up moving away from him because of his rather cantankerous nature, you, you feel. Yeah, I definitely got the sense that he had his favourites and when you were in favour with him, you were quids in. Yeah. And as soon as you weren't, that was it. Like the mm-hmm. letters from Gabe just read like Peter ignoring him. Like as, yeah. once he was no longer part of mm-hmm. Peter's uh, attention or focus, that's it. He just didn't exist to the point where one of the letters has got a red pen through it. Like, I refuse to accept what's been written here. Yeah. Just completely dismissive. Yeah. One of the letters from Gabe mentions Muriel by name. Uh, Muriel, the head, so far as we have met so far, of the circus (laughs) faction within this world. Muriel, as a vibraphonist who recorded, successfully recorded the Norwood Suite, and transposed it into F. So I don't know if there was something about the about the curse that was broken when transposing it, or whether she was just a very talented musician and was able to record this impossible piece of music. But uh, apparently, it you know Muriel was spoken of in very high terms throughout the series, and you kind of get the sense that like her musical talent, or there's some sort of a kind of connection to Peter Norwood that caused her to become this kind of mythic figure as well. It's a load of nonsense, really, isn't it? Yeah. No, I mean, it I is. Just, I just let uh, it wash over me, honestly. Yeah, and th- that for me, and I know, so, I mean, mileages vary on this, and I know some people really, really enjoy this kind of subtext. Yeah, uh, th- this is my favourite game of the three because I like the blend of exploration and mechanics, and I think you know, we'll come on to the third game, but I think the third game leans too far towards mechanics than than exploration. So this is the sweet spot for me. But I did, you know, I started looking at the tableaus and I, I felt myself thinking, well, I'm not, I, do you know what? I'm just not really interested in, in any of this. But as a for, on an experiential level, I, I mean, the, the whole thing is, there's so much to see and experience in here. But once... Uh, Maybe it started to get bogged down a little bit when some of these bits towards the end opened up. Yeah, so I guess throughout we find we find a lot of stuff that's a little bit confusing to make sense of. Mm. I think it's better contextualized in the next game. All of this kind of robotics business going on in the background. Yeah. We get the sense that uh, we see what look like cloning tanks yeah. or something. I say that like cloning tanks are something that are immediately <laughs> recognizable. Uh, you know, they look like the uh, the revitalization tanks from Bioshock yeah. or something like that, that uh, we see either, you know, different robotic parts of kind of representing Peter Norwood kind of scattered around. But we we do get the sense that Norwood is dead and gone or at least gone. So unlike other characters that we learn are robots throughout the series, it it seems like he was toying with the idea of creating a robot clone of himself or had attempted it or something but was perhaps unsuccessful or 
something didn't go according to plan. We don't know yet. Maybe they're going to explore that in later games. But uh, I, I think the robot stuff is where I start to check out a little bit, but it, it does get a little bit more interesting in the next mm-hmm. game. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think th- this one for me was more about the myth around this hotel yeah, and whether the myth actually mm. was just around the man or whether there is something more weird going on. Because even though he's not here, his presence is so felt in this hotel. And then you yeah, start to yeah. realize that this isn't a case of all the staff are of a, are carrying on this legacy around this hotel together. Even they are divided on what's going on and, and they follow the rules, but they don't necessarily respect the person who's now enforcing yeah. the rules. And and then you've got the this the sort of side part of it, which is you've got this company that wants to to uh come in and, and buy the hotel. Um you've also yeah. got the 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 fact that you've got Bogart who's got this sort of lifelong contract there who wants to leave but other people are acting like, well, yeah, that's not going to happen, obviously, um, because he they've got something over him. So it's just all this kind of push and pull around this hotel and keeping it going. And I, I ran the gamut from Gone Home definitely came up as like clearly yeah. an influence for, for the yes. exploration side and the way it's laid out. But in terms of trying to understand the space and what it represents, um, something like The Shining honestly came to mind yeah. of just like this mm-hmm. feeling that the... In that case, it's not so much there is a person there who's overbearing. It's just that the myth around a building that just drips from every single part of it uh, just completely almost overwhelmed me. Uh, I have to say, it's well, a bit like it, it's a bit like Hotel California as well, isn't it? And that yeah. a lot of the people who work there that ne- were never employed. They they just turned up and then never left. I hew more towards the David Lynch style of definitely has some of that as well. Is it Twin Peaks season one? I won't spoil anything. It just they keep talking about an a- agent that doesn't show up, and he keep. Yeah. And I think um, I think that happens to a couple of different characters. My mem- memory is hazy of that first season, but it's a kind of a David Lynch ish thing to sort of mention someone who's off screen, and 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 Norwood is off screen, you know, because he never he doesn't turn up. He's not walking around or something. There's no like Bioshock kind of final. There isn't a final showdown with Norwood. I can't even remember the end of this game. I no, played it two no, years no. ago, but 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 no. But there's that. Yeah, but it's a sort of. I I feel about it in a more much more vague way uh, to keep myself interested. I I really think this game is such an interesting, brilliant game, and I just don't want to <laughs> engage with the detail of the story because I think that takes away from the experience of just of just wandering around and appreciating strange sights and sounds and they're so it's so rich with that it's something that tales doesn't quite the density with tales isn't quite there there's plenty of brilliantly strange stuff in tales um and i did enjoy i did still enjoy the the um nonsensical visual visual and abstract and surrealist stuff in that um but there's something about norwood suite the the hotel that every room you open up with a key there's some kind of reward visually like the floor is on the ceiling or you know (laughs) there's just this weird guy dancing in the middle of a room of bendy buildings or something like that you know yeah every space is artistically rewarding and it doesn't matter about the story to me honestly yeah the so the weirdest part about that particular room that i really loved it's like so it's laid out like it's a cityscape but if you're human-sized in it you would appear more like 
Godzilla. You know, it's definitely yeah. got that aspect of it. But there's three sliders there. Two of them affect the music. One of them affects the dancer. <laughs> if you turn the two outside ones down, all the music drops. He's still dancing. Yeah. And then you drop the middle one and he stops dancing. Yeah. And you put the other two up and the music yeah. comes back. That's just weird. But it's great. taking it's into great. account that there are robots in this world, I don't know <laughs> but, that he's a robot. Yeah, but but I just love to enjoy it on a free in a free form way, kind of like yeah. yeah. What if what if mm-hmm. maybe he did have a, you know big subtext and lore and a greater kind of message to to send, and that there was a story weaving all this together? Or I prefer to think, and this could be wrong, or I prefer to enjoy it thinking that the creator made this room, thought, what am I going to put in it? Came up with a silly idea, tried exactly. it, slept on it, came back, diddled around with it, put a put a you know gungy penis hanging off the ceiling or whatever, and, and called it a day <laughs> yeah. and moved on to the next one. You know that is that, and, and and if I if I really try and keep my head in a kind of abstract art, the same way if you if you didn't know you know I don't know you never studied fine arts or something and you went to an abstract art gallery and just let your mind wonder, let your eyes almost unfocus and just experience it i think is the most valuable way to to hit the norwood suite in particular is is for me just just experience it as much as possible and yeah don't don't let any one thing hook into your brain yeah i think with i think with tales as well he goes in big on the subtext and the wider story and the wider law whereas in the norwood suite if if you forget about about all that you have got the experiential thing of just letting it all wash over you but you've also got some what i felt were on a very surface level, were pretty grounded stories, like the conversation between the guy and his daughter about the fact that she won't write music with a pen and paper, she does it all on computer, he doesn't like it. And And then this story about the hotel being taken over by the capitalist monsters, you know, you can... It feels grounded. Yeah. I mean, if you ignore if you ignore the fact that they all need twenty four cans of blue moose each, <laughs> and they all and they all need a, a pizza each, like because that does tie into the wider stuff. Like there are stories going on in the mm. hotel that feel grounded, and it feels like if you did wander around a hotel, maybe a hotel sort of a rural hotel with people who stay there a lot, you would find these little stories going on. So it kind of makes it feel like a more believable space as well. And the reason those are so entertaining to me is that the person might have giant hands or a silver bowler hat on or, or, you know, be some other other weird characteristic or a bit of them might be wobbling around in some strange fashion um, to then deliver a more straight line or a straight piece of narrative. Just what makes much it all feel for me. Off. Yeah, I love yeah, it. I love absolutely. it. Absolutely. From a progression perspective, uh, let's talk about the actual uh, layout of the hotel, a lot of the structures that it uses to kind of guide players in one direction or the other. Um, I'll say, kind of at the beginning here, the opening of the game I find to be really strong. Yeah. You are dropped off uh, by Muriel, who drives you up to the foot of this hill with the hotel atop it. Kind of in the middle of the night, you can see the city off yeah. in one direction, and there's a forest behind a chain link fence in the other direction. And you can even look through the the fence and see just somebody weirdly standing <laughs> and watching you from the forest, which is creepy and crazy. And I kind of love that. There's another moment later on uh, where one of the there's like a I don't know what it's called the 
like a room, like an attic type of room that you see in a barn with a big external window facing outwards. Uh, anyways, you could see a big open space up high in the hotel um, from the beginning of the game. And at one point later in the game, when you go out later to make a delivery to somebody, you can see somebody standing in that space that is otherwise inaccessible, mm. just kind of standing there and watching. So I, I love these little touches of uh, that just kind of give you the sense of, uh, of slight paranoia. Mm. I think this one is the creepiest of the three games, yeah. but there's nothing I would say that is intentionally scary in this game, there might be like one very minor jump scare, if I remember correctly, but there's very little in here that is like, I don't think anyone would find it. Even people who are super, you know, chicken about horror games, which I am as well. Uh, I don't think anyone would find it very upsetting to play. No, I don't, th- like I don't that. think it's um, unsettling. But yeah, I don't think it's ever intended yeah, to be yeah. scary or threatening. It's just, as you say, it just does yep. enough to tickle that paranoia sort of sense that we have that is just not quite right and to be fair gone home as the touchstone for this there was that running joke of absolutely is this a ghost story it's not nothing the game actually actively does suggests this is a ghost story um obviously no spoilers for that but it's just the space being creepy enough to put you in the same frame of mind and that's exactly it's like yes having someone in the forest looking at you seeing someone in a place you know there shouldn't be able to be someone that that is directly being done to unnerve but it then it's the 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 brain's own way of of playing tricks on itself that sets the paranoia off isn't it so there's a wonderful hole later or quite late in the game where just these panels come down and then there's just these rows of heads on either side and they just follow you around and i just love that image it's so i I took a screenshot of that it's uh, um, yeah me too yeah it's It's as you're going to the very end of the game up the final lift to go Mm. to i think bogart's room but and that just will stay me that will stay with me it's such a it's this yeah um but not in a uh, and i can imagine some people don't like this kind of surreal surroundings and stuff like that and not even in a horror way just in a they didn't like Twin Peaks. They don't like the. Yeah. They don't like being on this shaky ground, um, mm. or they don't like having their their eyes artistic, you know, challenged with strange art and strange framing and stuff like that. Um, I can definitely see how some people might bounce off this game uh, from a discomfort point of view. My favorite artistic touch. Uh, well, there's a couple things that stand out to me in particular. I love the door frame that is the hands is made <laughs> yeah. of hands that all kind of like all face inwards and kind of make like a tickling motion yeah. um that's really weird uh but my my favorite bit is in one of those kind of secret exits uh from one of the rooms you know they give you these back hallways that open up that allow you a little bit more convenient way to get to somewhere else in the hotel uh one of them just opens into this huge like void of space and you can see these kind of like shapes and structures off in the distance it doesn't make any sense based on where the hotel is in the world but it's just this huge empty space that you could just kind of hear like echoing and reverberating the nothingness but uh yeah it's 
such a there, such a strange scene to emerge into. Yeah. So so one of related to that one of the rooms I forget which number you go into and it's almost like it's uh, it's made of glass on the inside and beyond that is like this red fiery sky looking surround and I had to step back out into the corridor and I was like oh no that. This is completely an art installation made to look a certain way. Either yeah. that or it's entirely yeah. supernatural and I'm being transported elsewhere. It's non well, non Euclidean is what you mean. It's it's a space yeah, a space that can't exist. Uh, I, even though I, the rest I, of the hotel is constructed. Yeah, but be- because each of the rooms has their own theme, like the room that's upside down, gravity doesn't change in that room. You still walk on the floor. It's just everything is on the ceiling. That makes me believe that it's not that it's non-Euclidean; it's that it's it's an illusion designed to look. Here is the outdoors room. Here is you know, like uh, going yeah. to the ice hotel. They have different ice sculptures in each room. They have artists come in and sculpt a theme for the room. So one of them's got guitars and and stuff because it's a more musically themed room. Um, and and that's the case here. You walk into a room and it's designed to look like you are suddenly outside mm. and you're not because it, it doesn't actually represent the outside at all but it just it's all that sort of thing where you open a door and you don't quite know what's going to be on the other side of it it, it is mechanically more developed as well certainly than off peak uh, obviously it's a lot longer but I, I i really appreciated the structure of the game i i really enjoyed the kind of lights challenge that each you know each well a lot of the npcs give you they've got a problem they give you a task it may well be go and fetch me some blue moose or it may well be go and fetch me this thing from my room and in return you get normally it's a key or it's something which allows you access to another part of the hotel which will allow you access to maybe another tableau or something else and i i I, just satisfied the simple little itch in my brain to be actually doing something while I'm taking in all of these amazing sights and sounds and she just felt that nice gentle sense of progress mm. as we ticked off each of these little tasks that was like right that's done another piece of the costume lovely move on to the next mm. and then you get access to another room and you know there's something really exciting to see and hear it just felt like it was driving me on through the game whereas off peak is very much a just go and experience it and then it's done. Yeah, and that's quite different from like the Stanley Parable and the Beginner's Guide. For sure. Well, the Beginner's yeah. Guide has a very, very specific linear structure. Stanley mm-hmm. Parable is built on that kind of rewards, like, you know, but but in a completely different actual structure to, to actually get there. This is more of an adventure, straight adventure game. And I love that there's so many interconnections between this map and there's so many ways into the hotel as well. Yeah. Uh, my first time that I played, the first thing that caught my eye was the couple that were talking in the parking yeah. lot. And so I took the elevator up into the music room where the music class was being taught. And so like that, that initial reveal of like the, the, the entry desk yeah. and the grand staircase, like, I think that is supposed to be like one of the first impressions of the inside of the hotel. And I didn't see that until much <laughs> later in my playthrough. Yeah, I did exactly I think the was same. Probably intended but i i love that that's possible and it really gives you a sense of like agency and ownership of your own playthrough as well the music i will just kind of say it continues to be very very strong um it's the uh blue moose man is my favorite song on the soundtrack i absolutely love all of these soundtracks it's uh probably the least standout of the three for me personally but it's still like one of my favorite albums to listen to just yeah. in general so um yeah still very very high marks just for the a, music. just very groovy 
and it and it keeps you moving a lot of the music it is it, it's quite pacey and only occasionally does it descend into to a complete like musical randomness but these are these are sort of tracks to push you forward as it, you know yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. the only point i would make about the music and i didn't realize that off peak the soundtrack to off peak was already a thing before the game uh, what i was thinking when i was playing through these games and i've listened to the soundtracks a lot over the past few weeks is in the game elevates for me the norwood sweet soundtrack whereas i actually prefer the off peak soundtrack out of the game than in the game and it makes complete sense now that i know that that was a thing before the game existed whereas I still enjoy listening to the Norwood Sweet soundtrack out of the game, but I much prefer those tracks in the game world. Mm. That's a great point. That's yeah. a great point. Let's uh, take our final detour into Tales from Off Peak City, Volume 1, uh, the extended title. This is Katano's Slice, uh, because you are going to be working at a pizza shop in this particular game. Um, towards the end of the Norwood Suite, you are... After you accomplish your mission, you are approached by a man, a member of Norwood's band previously, who was visiting the hotel. It kind of looks like in uh, in very poor health. Um, he's on a ventilator and uh, he doesn't speak much, but he always kind of watches you <laughs> when when he's in your room. But he has this this kind of there's this creepy moment at the end of the game where he's just kind of lurching towards you. <laughs> I guess this is the instance of a character moving up. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 He walks towards you with his arms out like he's going to give you a big hug. He has this really blank expression on his face. It's really hard to <laughs> get a sense of whether it's malicious or or positive. But um but you open up in in Tales from Mafic City Volume One on a rowboat, uh being rowed into seemingly from an ocean into the city you pass through this uh kind of this this archway or this uh this large wall with a doorway that you sail through you can look behind you and it disappears the title of the game is written on that wall uh it's a really kind of groovy plucked bass tune that serves as the the leitmotif for this particular game and even comes back um in one of the endings of uh betrayal at club low I think to represent this uh this space. But uh Tales from Off Peak City Volume One was released on May 15th of 2020. Uh reviews and awards. Metacritic has seven critic reviews this time. So again, we can just see catching more critical eyes. Uh has an 83 from those seven critics, with an 8.3 from 11 users. And 99% positive reviews on Steam from 361 users. So similarly strong. You see a little bit of a, a little bit stronger in some areas, a little bit weaker than other areas, depending on what sources you are you are pulling that information from, uh, based on the reviews and uh, awards compared to the Norwood Suite. But uh, yeah, similar kind of positive trajectory. The Scenario this time around, I think, serves more of an important role than it does previously. Yeah. This game is a little bit more straightforwardly mechanics driven, mm-hmm. um, but still mostly exploration, point and click adventure style, lock and key types puzzles again, um, with a few uh, interesting mini games added in here and there. So, uh, the scenario you arrive at the corner of July and Yam streets and are instructed to get a job at the local pizza shop in order to steal the saxophone locked away in Katano's basement. We learn that Human Resource Horizons, HRH, 
is a giant factory in this part of the town that once employed the entire block before laying everyone off, though it seems with kind of a generous severance so that everyone is still living somewhat comfortably uh, and doesn't really want to complain and rock the boat too much because they they got such a nice severance from it. But um, But everyone is, most everyone is effectively unemployed because of this kind of slash and burn giant factory that uh, employed everyone and laid everyone off. So um, now the town is kind of a vestigial branch of the city. Uh, there's a train accident that we can see. Um, there's a elevated train that is kind of dangling from the tracks. And due to the train accident, the rest of the city, it, this part of the city is effectively cut off from the rest of it. But there's a, yeah, there's really very little political interest in it from the outside. They seem like kind of a self-sustaining community in a way. Uh, the community here supports themselves, though the HRH and Blue Moose Energy Drink Corporation still <laughs> operate globally, essentially. Uh, we, we get a job at this pizza shop, Kitano Slice. Uh, as we deliver pizza and earn money, we meet the residents of the city and learn more about HRH and the gang-like enforcer of corporate interests, Big Mo, <laughs> who meets uh, pretty early on as well, also serves as the primary antagonist of the next game. And he game. has no neck. Uh, we, no. Yeah, he's a bit of a rough-looking fellow. <laughs> uh, we learn that Kitano has a, uh, was a member of Peter Norwood's band, who's a saxophonist, though at one point he got, and again, this is from Tableau, so I'm uh, perhaps reading a bit into this, he got deathly sick at one point. Uh, wanting to preserve his musical legacy, Norwood commissioned a robotic replica of Kitano, kind of to the disgust and disapproval of Kitano's grieving wife and daughter. Uh, you get the sense that like they weren't really on board with what Norwood was suggesting, and you kind of got the sense that Norwood was suggesting it to preserve the musical talent rather than to do right by the family, if that makes sense. The robotic replica, though, lacked Katano's musical talent, it kind of made Norwood's gambit unsuccessful. But Norwood, in a as kind of a man of honor, the, a sense that you didn't really necessarily get from the previous game, but like in a very honorable move, it seems that he kept the robot alive and in good repair, and even sponsored the purchase of two additional robots to represent his wife and daughter. Uh, because I assume, and I'm reading into it again, I assume once the robot was made, his actual wife and daughter rejected the robot and didn't want to spend time around it because yeah. they were grieving the actual man who died. Um, so this was no replacement. But the though the robot lacked the capacity to play music with the same effectiveness that he did during life, the robot either retained or amplified the love that he felt and the need for connection that he felt with his family. So these other robots were really necessary uh, to make him feel like he had somewhat of a complete life again to satisfy his need. And again, Norwood funded the creation and um, and upkeep of these robots. Even after Norwood's death, the Norwood estate continued to pay for parts and repairs for the whole family up until the events of the Norwood suite in which the hotel was uh, purchased by the Moldego company, and uh, they cut off the funding to Katano Robot and um, the upkeep of his unit and his family. 
So essentially, Katano was either he fell into disrepair or more likely he was repossessed by HRH who created the robots and were kind of taking back. Once the money stopped coming in, they stopped repairing the family. They stopped, uh, you know, they, they probably wanted to repossess him to, you know, regain some of their investment. Um, but essentially we kind of come to this, this understanding throughout a series of, uh, kind of strange encounters throughout the game, but it is another kind of weird robot story. But, um, but I, th- I think it's it's pretty effectively delivered. But anyways, again, scenario was kind of secondary to the vibes and to the kind of incidentals. Is it, is it effectively communicate? I, I knew about 10% of, 10% of that. And uh, I completely I, I knew it. about 3%, <laughs> yeah, so just, you're doing better than me, Thomas. None of, that, none of that lands for me. Fair enough. I have played through several, several times, so maybe yeah. I have the advantage of just having witnessed all this happen over I, and I over again. I just don't think laying it all like that it's a bit like Elden Ring in a in a completely different way. Like laying it all out like that takes a lot of what it takes takes away from the game for me. Yeah, I agree. I just want to go. I yeah, I don't know. I, it's a personal thing, but maybe I just want. I just loved the game impressing itself upon me. Mm. I took away so little of of that those like linear details from it. Maybe that's me being inattentive or rushing or whatever. But honestly, I think. Maybe I'll save it for the uh, prepare to slice videos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. I just the game is better without that detail, and in the way that Souls, if you only get part of the story, or Elden Ring, if you only grab impressions of it as you go, and you just drink in everything else and drink in what you want to, I find is a more natural way to kind of enjoy it. And um, and he's still, I mean, there's there's still he's still a fun. Katana is still a fun character and sort of sympathetic character because he takes sort of takes you in immediately and like promotes you above someone else who's been begging for the job. And I, I still feel like moment to moment there's fun to be had in the mini stories and the little goings on and the and the sort of the the adventure yeah, of the totally. game and then all of that other stuff kind of really really goes over my head. There's not. Uh, the- I didn't enjoy this one as much as the Norwood Suite. And I think part of the reason why, and another reason is making pizzas, but part of the reason why is this feels more reliant on this wider tale of robotics and HRH. And whereas the Norwood Suite did have some of that going on and it was there if you went looking for it, but it also did have those little grounded stories we talked about earlier. And I feel like there were far fewer of those in, in this game. And there was... There was less to really get into if you didn't really want to engage in the wider stuff, yeah. and that that mm. meant that I actually felt a bit stupid by the end of it because I didn't really feel like I got it. Whereas the Norwood Suite, I didn't feel like I really had to get it. I enjoyed the stories that I took away from it, but by the end of Tales from Off Peak City, I kind of felt well. I don't really want to go through it again because there was part of it I didn't really enjoy. And I don't really feel like I get the story. So whilst I still did enjoy all the visual art and the music and the the exploration-y stuff, I felt like I took away much less from this game than I did the other two. That's interesting. I definitely feel differently. So the Norwood Suite is much more of an interesting space to explore for me. This game, essentially, is a series of vignettes linked together on a crossroads and paced out by pizza deliveries um (laughs) but what that means is 
um i i really enjoyed the fact that like you walk up to the the um the guy who's having a yard sale and there's a bunch of stuff on there that clearly you can't afford and then you go to the pawn shop and i like the fact that there's a consistency there with people who don't really have much to do except just sell the stuff they have <laughs> and then probably buy it back at some point yeah. um and and so I, I liked the the narrative that that gave but ultimately what the way this game was structured did was it it meant that I didn't need to worry about when I was supposed to go and do something. Like some of the things on sale in the pawn shop, you can't buy. You're never given enough money to buy. So I was, I actually found it very clever that I only ever got the money I needed to do the next part of the story. Whereas the Norwood Suite, I enjoyed exploring right. all of that, but the individual stories were were all essentially fetch quests. And as Chris knows, one of them kind of half broke for me, which meant I just ended up <laughs> yeah. wandering around the space a little confused and yeah, frustrated. That's a shame. Because I'd handed over the the um strategy book for the game. But then apparently there was another conversation I needed to have to get the key. So I just didn't have a piece of the puzzle. Whereas I mm. feel like in Tales from Off Peak City, mechanically in terms of the way the, the it, it strings you along and paces things out, it's actually much tighter Yeah, because yeah. you only ever get the pizza deliveries when the station has it for you. And if you haven't got one, you know, you're meant to go and do something else. So I actually felt the game hung together better as a game, even though I found the space much less interesting to explore. I almost could have said, take the, the hub out and just have it be, I am in the pizza shop, make the pizza. And then I am just warped to here's the place you need to be in. Yeah. The only mm. bit that kind of made it interesting was each vignette kind of ended with you having to escape the scene because now the guards and Mo had appeared. Yeah. And, and that then looped you back around in, in a similar way to the, the secret passages. They kind of did that, which was cool and unnerving in some cases, there's certainly no sense that he's going more mainstream as he goes on with his games because <laughs> the, this di dials up the weirdness. Yeah. You know, you, the, one of the first things, the first encounters you have is the house that can speak. You know, he's with the guy who's who's having his yard sale. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. I mean, the the whole space, the whole you know, this is a city block, isn't it? Essentially, you know, with with upside down cars and a canal running through it and. I think he heavily influenced. I've never been to New York, but apparently heavily influenced by New York City, which is where Cosmo Cosmo lives. But with this canal running through it, which again lends itself a wonderful verticality to the environment. You know, you can look down and see what's there. But the weirdness is is definitely dialed up, dialed up in this one. Yeah. So um, this is a uh, this is by far the most linear of the games that we talked about today. It's a little bit less self guided of a tour than everything else. It's the most Disneyland Dark Ride, another point that I've made earlier on, in that you are kind of told specifically where to go next and are given these kind of scenes that play out both before and after the pizza delivery is made. Uh, the pizza delivery, the point at which they eat the pizza that you have built for them and delivered to them, kind of serves as a transitionary mo moment to transform the scene in some way from what it was beforehand to... Uh, kind of the second half of the scene that happens, um, oftentimes with Big Mo and his crew barging in to, uh, to break things up. You get the sense that uh, the pizza is somehow like activating the robot mechanisms or is like 
causing like inspiration and awakening in the people again or something <laughs> like that. Uh, sense that like they want to kind of tap down this rabble rousing, so to speak, and they they become increasingly frustrated with the pizza delivery person. But um, the the linearity of it is kind of a strength and a weakness. It's the um, this is probably the game that's the easiest to recommend to new players because it is such a guided experience. Um, even people that don't play games, I'd imagine, can do pretty well in Tales from Off Peak City. But it feels less. Um, I, I just I just find it less interesting to explore a guided space than oh, yeah. something yeah. that's a little bit more open ended, like Norwood Suite. I don't know. I appreciate. Yeah. I'm really appreciating short games at the moment. I just beat Stray as Stray as well. I, there's something about having a guided mm-hmm. experience that that suits me personally right now in my headspace as That's a busy, busy dad who just doesn't have to and mind you i was playing it for deadline for the for the podcast so actually um that that might taint that view uh, like if i'd played it more naturally with more time etc cetera, etc cetera, i might have a different opinion of that but i i found the pacing and the the guidedness helpful to enjoy the humor and the humor was delivered with such consistency a bit like the 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 density of reward in Norwood Suite uh, visually and and surrealistically is the reward, whereas here it's uh, you know of course it's surreal but the, it's much I find it funnier the writing's really great and just you know delivering the pizza watching them eat it there's sort of a fade out and then something <laughs> weird happens like the people all shrink and end up in their board game or or just you know there's a there's a replica of the model in a cot, you know, in a, that's, that's going back and forth. And there's, I don't know, it's just the strangeness of it all is really entertaining and being held by the hand to kind of see, see that is, is, was helpful to me on this occasion. The other new mechanic in this game is actually building pizzas. I know that this is already within our conversation. It seems like it's going to be a little bit of a controversial inclusion, but uh, I think despite the fact that you end up doing the same thing multiple times over without much variation, I do still enjoy this. You are given like all of the ingredients that you have thus far found in the game are arranged around the pizza. You spread out the dough and then you can just start picking up ingredients and just throwing them on the pizza as much as you want. And each of the ingredients has a different instrument associated with them. Yeah, that that, is cool. uh, Build up in the mix of music that's playing while you're building the pizza. And even after the pizza comes out of the oven and it's, it's, delightful it reminds me of the apps that my children play like there's you know the one with santa claus and they style his hair and then they turn it red and spray it and cut it off and and you know make him look absolutely ridiculous but the the just very childlike sense of play you can bring to it um i just really enjoyed i just found it hilarious and and yeah the strange ingredients and then and all the pizza topics are physics objects yeah, as well. Yeah. So and they actually fall off the edge. If you get a little bit overambitious and pile off. them way too high, then yeah, they'll fall off as they go on the conveyor belt to the oven. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then as you build the different pizzas and make the deliveries, the people will react to the ingredients that you put on the pizzas. And there's different dialogue for putting very minimal amounts of any of the ingredients, putting kind of a just right amount of the ingredients and putting way too much of any ingredient. It's never negative, but, um, but it's always like, 
wow, boy, you really like your cheese, huh? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I mean, I guess I'll give it a try. Um, yeah. And well, it's, chocolate on pizza. Wow, I've never considered it, but it, I'm sure it works. Yes. <laughs> I love those comments. Yeah, it's so, it's, there's so much dialogue that has to be written for this game. Yeah. Like, I kind of just want to read like a text dump. And there's also dialogue for just giving them baked bread without any toppings on it at all or giving them just cheese and no red sauce or giving them just red sauce or just gummy worms like there's so many combinations then each character has their own way of speaking sometimes there's two of them in the room receiving it together so i can only imagine how much dialogue there must be to support this one yeah. mechanic yeah. I, I find that quite but also funny. making the pizzas oh, there's yeah. like giant pictures of cows on the wall and these two hands come all the way across the room <laughs> and the music's fantastic when the pizza comes out of the uh oven so in a very very basic goblin brain kind of like simple game away like when i see my kids load up a superly cheap cheaply Panda. made uh, app um, there's just a real like childlike basic enjoyment I I personally took from it. Like thinking about the the pizza creation, I agree. By the end of the game, I was sort of getting to the point of yeah, I'm kind I kind of feel yeah. like I've got what I needed to from this, and yet I'm still being asked to make pizzas, and I'm not sure why because talking about it, it is just wacky and kind of fun to make these pizzas. Yeah. But the other thing is you get these weird prompts and I think the only one I was able to make any sense of, and it doesn't make any difference really at all, was was one that was um they wanted toppings from unusual sources or something like that. But it, yeah. it's like it's like you're putting in a request, I guess to go back to the theme of a jazz band and you're the prompt you're giving them is an emotion and they're just supposed to spin off from that. It's that's the kind yeah. of request you get. You don't get, it's not like a, a, um, a cooking game where you would get, here's yeah, a like list a of ingredients you're supposed to put on. Isn't it? It's yeah. just, I, yeah. And here's a poetic off, sentence, off make a pizza that fits. In off peak, yeah. they've got the pizza place and the way that other characters kind of talk about pizza in this game and in off peak is is funny to me because they talk about it like he's a jazz they, they talk about it almost like he's yep. a jazz musician who delivers different kinds of solos and they're commenting yeah. on his solos and they say oh yeah. you know his you know they, they sort of talk about like the personality of the pizza or what Catano brings to it that's so like novel and it's just stupid i mean it's just hilarious and silly and 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 you know offbeat to me and i really enjoy and that going going back to the notion that uh, Peter Norwood created this Kitano robot to try and preserve his musical creation. You realize that people treat his pizzas like that. So he has still got the creativity. He just doesn't have it for music anymore as a robot. He has it for food. And that's a really cool aspect of something went wrong. He, he, like Norwood was able to create a robot that was as creative. He just couldn't direct the creativity. It went into the pizza, um, yeah. which, which, yeah. which leads back to the sort of tragedy of it all, that presumably one of the reasons Norwood was trying to create a robot that would be a vessel by which someone could still exist in the world was either so that he could create one of himself before he died, which as far as we know, he never did, but it's this failed experiment that yielded something completely other that is beautiful over in this different direction that's really cool. What, it's, what it symbolises for me, and where, where I worry about Cosmo D's direction of travel, is he's moving away, I, it feels, and Betrayal of Club Low is a continuation of this, he's moving away from the thing that I really enjoy about Off-Peak and Norwood Suite, and every game 
There are more mechanics being introduced. Yeah. yeah. And again, it, it's very much a subjective thing for, for me. I don't really care much for the photography element of it. I didn't really enjoy the mechanic of making the pizza. And I worry that, you know, and it's very much he can make whatever game he wants, of course. But to my taste, the Norwood Suite just hits that lovely sweet spot of exploration with some light adventure game mechanics on top. Whereas I think by the time you get to Tales from Off Peak City, it feels there's more mechanics going on there. Maybe it's more mechanical than exploration based at, at that point. And obviously Betrayal of Club Low is a completely different game. Uh, it just, I think it just, it just for me symbolizes, I'm not really sure I like the direction of travel here. Yeah, but it's, they're so short games and the mechanics are so light. Like even that wouldn't, that doesn't particularly worry me. Like, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's just breezy. Mechanics do get quite a bit heavier in uh, Betrayal at Club Love, oh, okay. though. That I, is a very mechanics-heavy game. Think, I think, so I completely get that. And I think had it not been for Betrayal at Club Low, I would agree there was kind of progression away from here's a space to explore and more to, okay, let's make these individual quests more the focus of it. Except Betrayal at Club Low switches like perspective, it switches so much about the game i'm not sure it is a direction of travel so much as actually each of these is yeah. just here's here's the game that i want to ape and it's not one game but lar- arguably it's a game or an era that i want to ape so norwood suite would be gone home um and and off peak would be more like like going back to those games we mentioned as kind of like touchstones for how it looks and just giving kind of like as as uh, demos would back in the day giving a space just to explore and see what the game's going to be about mm. and it feels yeah. some some ways like off peak was a a demo version in that way to to know what norwood suite would then be but yeah now i'm less sure that this is a progression of development style and more that okay here's here's what i know how to do now if i want to mm. make a game like this which betrayal at club low i've not played that much disco elysium but is Disco Elysium all over it. You know, it's just, yeah, it's yeah, so sure. different yeah, yeah. that I don't think it is a direction. I think it's just, here's a game I want to, to ape, or not mm. ape because that, that's cheapening it, but here's a game that's inspiring me at the moment. I'm going to yeah, do yeah, my yeah. version of that that fits in this universe. I'll say, Chris, to your point, I I do kind of agree with where you're coming from. I still really like Betrayal at Club Low, um, just for its own, I think it's a, a very well-constructed game of its sort um i've for a very very long time for many years actually i've been kind of saying like somebody should mix together the point and click adventure style game with the mechanics of a crpg yeah and then when disco elysium happens i was like there we go somebody cracked the code like now (laughs) let's start seeing let's see what what a comedic disco elysium looks like let's see what a a more bite-sized disco elysium which is essentially what betrayal was so i find I really like Betrayal at Club Low, but it was the first game of this series that I felt didn't have to be Cosmo D doing it, yeah. so to speak. I, I think, you know, he still brings a lot of the, especially the musical talent, like still a really good soundtrack, but a lot of the visual design, I don't know if it's best served by the fixed camera perspective. Yeah. Um, Tales, there's so much that is such a, wild discovery to make when you round a corner yourself like mm. that giant dog at the end of the alleyway like that yeah. is a striking thing to run into and not expect to see it there 
And you don't get that same kind of moment of discovery and you don't get the same sense of things being an incorrect scale or a, yeah. an exaggerated scale, mm. rather, in a fixed camera perspective, unless it is something like a, a God of War Ascension, where they will zoom the camera way out while yeah. you're on-screen character. But anyways, for the most part, like I just I don't think the fixed camera third-person perspective suits Cosmo D's strengths as well as the first-person free exploration, yeah. immersive being a part of the world does. I'm, I'm a little bit less like interested in super mechanically driven games as opposed to like, I just like to be in these worlds and I just like to exist in these spaces. Yeah. I still really like Betrayal at Club Low because I think it is just a well-designed game, but I don't think that like, I would kind of rather future games go back to something that is a little bit more open-ended and a little bit more Norwood mm. in a way. Like I want to see inspiration taken from stuff that's more kind of like a short hike or umurangi generation yeah. or you know games that give you a lot of choice as to what you want to do in like a in a space that is built out a lot of little scenarios that you can stumble upon a lot of beautiful things for you to discover but you aren't necessarily like forced or guided to see each of them and then maybe you know as you like i think that a cosmo d if a cosmo d game was primarily built around photography instead of pizza building. Like, I think that's a really effective way of getting people immersed into the space of giving them something relatively frictionless that they can accomplish uh, as a way of like, you know, going throughout like this big contigu contiguous space. I, I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'd love to see more like that. But again, like I know that Cosmo D is a big RPG person. Yeah. Like, I don't want to take away from his own personal ambitions Club Low was still very good. So, mm. you know, it is a bit of a win-win, but just, yeah, as far as personal taste goes, like exploration for me is what really draws me back to these spaces over and the, over the again. The first person perspective is so important as well to some of the sight gags. Like in like when you yeah. find his wife and child and you look out the window and there's this sort of this farm skybox that follows you follows your first person camera or follows round because of your first person camera but it's non euclidean and the, it, it, it i don't even know if i'm using that correctly but it extends way be out <laughs> beyond you're like in a small room and then the skybox is massive and it just reminds me so much of you know duke nukem 3d and those 90s thing and if you're not first person and moving around and controlling it yourself you just can't do yeah, that kind of gag um, yeah all the jump scares from behind. The third person perspective kind of requires the invite. Well, a it, it means the environments are going to be static, but also it requires them to be readable in terms of your route through them, which yeah. means that you can't do a lot of the stuff that in first person games you can do with perspective. Thinking about j coming out mm -hmm. onto um, July and, and Yam Street, the way that those buildings are, like uh, it was mentioned, the the sort of Sam and Max style, but a building in a three D space where you have perspective accentuates the the verticality it also helps you feel constrained in certain alleyways and in a wide open space and others and you can't really do that with a, a fixed perspective because the only thing that changes in the environment is you when you're moving around it everything else kind of stays fixed and that means that you can't really play with those aspects nearly as much i don't think I think you can create visual surprise and aesthetic impact in a 
with the fixed camera perspective, like in Club Low, I've not seen enough of Club Low yet. I've only really seen the the opening couple of scenes, so I can't really speak to whether 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 it achieves that. I think you can do it in a fixed camera slash traditional point and click perspective, but it's going to be much different, and I think requires yeah. a different thought process than it would do if you're doing it in first person. Yeah. It's a little bit easier then to kind of hide things from the player. Yeah. I think it just probably needs to be thought through a little bit more, but. Uh, my 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 concern would be, and I don't think Cosmo D will do this because I think he has such a strong purpose when it comes to visual and and sound design. My worry would be that it would start to just feel a little bit generic. Yeah, just you know, like because other there games. are lots lots of indie point and click games around. Mm. That's it. I mean, I just glanced at, at Club Low and I haven't played it at all, and immediately it looks more like other games than and, and just has less of a distinct uh, uh, flavour at, at a complete glance. But I think we're coming out of a period in which walking simulators have grown so much over the past half decade, decade, uh, it's probably been mm. now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 13 uh, years or so. It, it really feels like for a new walking simulator to stand out these days, like it has to do something that is just so blindingly new yeah. that... Um, so maybe, you know, maybe he's anticipating this kind of like market saturation in a way, maybe. But again, like he doesn't seem to be the type of person who's really trying to chase trends yeah. or really trying to make the most commercially viable product that could possibly be made. So I don't know. I'm sure he's just chasing his own heart and interests, uh, which is totally I mean, cool. He, he does say somewhere in the game that it will, rep- that, that, you know, it's going to be an anthology and there'll be a volume two and stuff. I don't know whether mm-hmm. that's still the plan for him, obviously. Next year, he says on one of the forum posts okay. he posted on the Steam forum, is that's planned for next year. I'm sorry for this year now. It's 2023 already, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Man, man. Where did it go? Yeah, so he, apparently it's scheduled for this year. So I guess we'll wait to see what that uh, ends up looking like. But um, I guess before we, we've done a lot of talk about the. Uh, kind of future of the series. Um, just to kind of wrap up, Tale from Up Peak City Volume One. Presentation wise, I know that we we talked a little bit about this open hub. Um, one of the things that I really love about it is it creates like a really fascinating possibility space. And we talked about how the Norwood Suite was, you know, a bit visually. I mean, it was very visually interesting throughout the entire journey. But I think that the urban setting is the ideal place for Cosmo D to really spread his wings. Uh, You could tell that he's both kind of painting what he knows and also urban landscapes are by necessity kind of like tons of different visual information all packed together really compactly. And that is this kind of maximalist style that he's always excelled in. And so each building has so much personality. Each building has these wonderful curved lines and zigzags and stuff it's very mickey's toontown it's very sam and max um, it's very amsterdam actually a, because of yeah, the or gaudi in okay. barcelona yeah, well the amsterdam yeah. with the canal and then the angled buildings you know wonky buildings yeah. but there's the uh, there's a sense that anything could be inside of these buildings yeah. and beyond just what is presented in the game i think that you know he's creating a setting where you could you know do tabletop role play games for the next you know 10 years with your group of friends you could you could have future you know volumes of tales from off peak city set even in the same city block because there's so many buildings you know he talked about on the steam forums that 
uh, other areas he'd like to explore, like the Blue Cathedral, Building 9, which we see characters enter. <laughs> that is the uh, that is the building that is a head on its side <laughs> weeping into the canal. Uh, we see characters enter that building at the end of, during one of the Betrayal at Club Low endings. There's the HRH factory, there's different apartment buildings, there's the, uh, he talks about tunnels underneath the city. And, uh, you know, this was expressed, I think I talked about up front, that um, I played this game as a downloadable executable from the Humble Trove pre-patch. When I returned to the Steam version, I bought the Steam version immediately after finishing it because I loved it so much. Uh, That version included some post-patch material, including an entire new apartment, which was the the photo studio that got under James skin so much. Yeah. This, <laughs> so yeah, that, that entire scenario just wasn't in the game when I first played it. Uh, so that's, that's an interesting promise. And I think that even if the city isn't quite as intricate as the kind of exploratory self-guided nature of the Norwood suite, there's a ton of possibility mm. that exists in the city. Uh, there's so much visual storytelling, like so much of the city is, uh, kind of boarded up with foreclosures and for sale signs. There's a sense that this is kind of a kind of a dying community, but the people again got this really generous severance severance package. So they're all kind of just lounging out in outdoor chairs and painting and maybe not living their best life, but living a comfortable life. And you know, there's this interesting push and pull of like it's bad for the city that this factory moved in and just kind of slash and burn this whole part of the town. But at the same time, like the people are kind of okay right now. I don't know what's going to happen once that severance amount, you know, is spent, but it's at least like a comfortable life for the moment. So it's, it's an interesting, like, again, kind of a transitory, yeah, yeah absolutely. if not a transitory space this time around, it's kind of a transitory like time era of yeah. life that we find That's these characters very, in. That's a very yeah. interesting thing you said. People are kind of okay right now. I mean, is, isn't that everybody um, in, in life that you know? Like, yeah. oh yeah, I'm kind of okay right now. <laughs> yeah. Especially during the pandemic, yeah. That's kind of the weird thing is we're very much here in, on this block at a, a moment between key events the 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 key event of you know uh, the factory shutting down and all of these people's lives being turned upside down and they're all just kind of waiting for whatever is going to happen next and it's this really weird and and I guess you're right Thomas that is everybody all the time we're all kind of sat here thinking okay I've reacted to the last thing that happened I'm now I've now dealt with that and we're all kind of most days are just the moments between other things happening in some way, mm. uh, which is kind of a weird way to think of things. And if you're not careful, your entire life ends up being, being that, but yeah, it's, it's yeah. definitely a, a, an interesting space. I think it's kind of visually represented within the space as well by the city kind of like sloping down into mm, the water. Yeah. Like the, the ocean is swallowing. Like it. the city is essentially like, yeah. And you don't get, you don't really get, a solid idea of whether the city was built like that, like as kind of a beachfront with like the street, weirdly enough, the paved street just kind of flowing into the ocean or whether the city is kind of sinking or being overtaken. But, you know, you get it's I, so evocative, like a lot of visual ambiguity. Yeah. I think you want to kind of have all of these elements kind of commingling in your mind yeah. all at once. The sense of like, 
history and a, a sense of an uncertain future and being kind of swallowed up by it's something. It's so evocative and it reminds me of so many different also brilliantly drawn places like Half-Life 2, City 13, you know, um, even even like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the book where they talk about the city shutting, the, the factory shutting down and people walking past the gates and not seeing no signs of activity at a certain part of the book. Yeah, it's just, it's the, it's so evocative. And Ryan, I absolutely agree when you say the possibility space versus the, the Norwood suite, for instance. It is exciting to think um, if he has the stamina and, and the will to, to, to and the desire to do it, to just bolt on different regions of the city or explore different different places but but it, but but yeah i i re- and and it just yeah it just makes me think of half-life 2 in a way of like how many people would kill to just walk around city 13 just you know an internet connected model even just empty streets or whatever just to see that that place and its architecture and drink it all in rather than be harried by giant walkers and and chased from place to place and you don't get that much time to sort of stop and drink in um, the Half-Life 2 environments. But but imagine if you could. Imagine if you could just plonk yourself down and walk around a couple of couple of apartments in a block and, and chat to people and, and find out what's what. Uh, so, yeah, I just get strong vibes from it. Yeah, we, we have been going on quite long. I think this is a great discussion, but we do have to kind of start working towards a resolution. That was uh, Tales, uh, Tales from Off-Peak City, Volume 1, Ketana Slice. Betrayal from Club Low, as we've mentioned, followed in September of 2022. Uh, this one was a third-person point-and-click slash CRPG hybrid. Heyo, exactly what I've been asking for. <laughs> uh, with um, dice-rolling mechanics, following on from Disco Elysium, kind of a contemporary to Citizen Sleeper and a few of the other games that are in this modern age, kind of making the dice rolls more visible than they had been previously in CRPG stylized games set in Club Low within Off Peak City. You infiltrate DJ Blueprints, a different DJ, DJ yeah. Blueprints. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, late night rave to rescue a circus agent who has been captured by Big Mo, who we <laughs> met in this game. In it, we learn of a mysterious new faction that we've heard whispers of previously named the Octagon. Even within Tales from Off Peak City, if we kind of flip around to the backside of certain pieces of paper, certain letters from other characters. We could see a black ah, octagon that's what that was. stamped onto the back of them. So there is an emerging faction that uh, I don't know what part they're going to play in this this ongoing story. But uh, again, <laughs> it's fine to ignore as well if, if that's not the way you choose to divide with these. But the octagon is headquartered in Building oh, 9, the Weeping Building. There so you go. Betrayal of Quablo. Maybe we'll cycle back again for Kanan Rince. Um, I'm uh, I'm in the credits. I was one of the uh, alpha testers from oh, uh, nice. Cosmo D's Discord channel. There's a ton of us in the credits, so uh, look for me if you finish the game. I'm uh, I'm in there <laughs> <laughs> among a huge sea of other fans. But anyways, um, let's give our summaries in outro. James, let's have you go first. Um, I really loved how different each of these games felt. I felt like. Not I could see the inspiration, but I could I could feel the inspiration behind each one and, and what made the game be. Um, and I think that's an important thing when it comes particularly to indie games. And it's it's very true, as we've mentioned, of um, largely solo creators. It's never solo, but th- where the influence comes from one individual. I think it's it's really cool to be able to see that because 
with a big AAA game, huge budget, where the inspiration comes from there, not to cheapen the hard work and the amazing creativity that goes into it, but the inspiration comes from, if we make a second one, we can make more money. Largely, that's my cynical take on it anyway. And here, it's like, no, I really liked Gone Home, so I'm going to make my version of that that fits in this weird sort of ever-growing and changing world that that is being created here by Cosmo D. I really loved exploring um, the Norwood Suite, and I loved each of these games for, for different reasons. I only played a, a sort of brief 40 minutes or so of Betrayal at Club Low, but I love the fact that I can see where those inspirations come from, and that puts me in a different frame of mind when I'm exploring the area and, and exploring the mechanics more in that one than the space. So yeah, uh, this is this has been a bit of a, an awakening for me. It's something that I've... It's been a weird few months since I played, or a couple of months since I played God of War Ragnarok, where I'm looking for stuff that is different because that felt like such a pinnacle of here is the polished cinematic experience and it 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 does for me those games do lose something by not having the unevenness and the un um sanded edges Mm. you know the rough corners and the bits that you snag on almost um and and i loved that about this the character that comes through in these games whether i'm looking for narrative or just aesthetic and just letting it wash over me it is just it is fantastic um yeah i'm i'm going to be looking out for cosmo d games going forward and i'm definitely now a a a, a fan in that respect it's fantastic chris how about you yeah this these have been lovely surprises for me i i was this these games are right in my wheelhouse these kind of exploration adventure games are definitely my jam i didn't really know what to expect going in but i think once you get over that initial opening of off-peak, the whole world just opens up. The Norwood Suite is definitely in my sweet spot in terms of the mix between exploration and light adventure elements. The the light fetch quests give you a reason to go from point to point. I just really hope that at some point he comes back to those style of more exploration-focused games as I said, by the time we get to Tales from Off Peak City, the mechanics there didn't really work for me as much as just generally being in the space. But I think if people are listening to this and haven't played the games, man, I wish you could turn back time because these games are so best experienced by having no preconceptions or expectations going in, Take no notice to anybody who tells you the surreal. Go and find all that stuff out for yourself because it's all there. The plot is something you can engage with or not. I choose really not to engage with the wider plot, although I do find that bit about the octagon quite interesting. But I, I choose not to engage in the wider lore. For me, they are beautiful spaces to be in. They're beautiful spaces to experience with incredible music incredible visual surprises and i'm really excited to see what cosmo d does in the future i'm actually really excited to now get back to playing betrayal at club low like james i've only played about 45 minutes of it so i'll fit and i know it's not a long game and that's the other thing with these games i mean the three games that we've covered here you can sit down and play through in five to six hours you know Mm -hmm. it really isn't a huge investment of anybody's time and it's so great that we live in a time where somebody like cosmo d Quite a successful musician. You know, this wasn't a guy who's a failed musician. He was making a living from producing music. He had a passion. 
for games. He had stories he wanted to tell. He had games he wanted to make. So he left all that behind. He's not a coder. You know, he couldn't have done this 30 years ago. But thankfully, we live now in an era where somebody like Cosmo D can open up Unity, can go into the tools and can share his vision with us. Overall, I've really, really enjoyed my experience with it with some highs and lows. And I'm very excited to see what he does next. Thank you very much. How about you, Tom? Um, yeah, th- this has been a fantastic um, issue to cover something, you know, less less well known and a fantastic discussion with just some brilliant points. And, and Chris, your points stood there as well. Such an important point to make about unity. And I, I come at these. I, I love these three. I, I love I really fallen in love with his work. I'm really glad I played them in the order of Nord Suite and then Off Peak and Tales from Off Peak. I think that's kind of the right way to go about it because Nord Suite is the more, I think, maybe polished, dense and accomplished game in a in a way. It, 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 yeah, I hate, hate to say it's the best one he's made of the lot, but possibly it is, although Tales is very approachable for maybe a slightly different kind of gamer. But uh, yeah, I just... And I, I come at this... Um, from a point of appreciation for abstract and surrealist art and the virtual exhibition side of things that just, I just really love, love that. I don't get out to real art galleries or museums enough, although I guess my kids will age into that and I can start taking them, but, but doing it virtually is, is, you know, in the pandemic and everything with the Radiohead experience has been a real pleasure. And so having games, these are, these are more games than that but just having just something interesting in every corner and then genuinely kind of funny um touches there's all kinds of gags going on there's sound gags there's sight gags there's first person gags there's like liminal space and and just just so creative so much in here it's just a a basket of goodies that you know, you should reward yourself um, if you are slightly cynical about big AAA games or just just a bit burned out, basically, on big, expensive uh, or, or mechanically heavy games or whatever. Just come and spend a couple of hours, even even at 45 minutes for off-peak, um, if, you, if you blaze through it. Just come and spend a couple of hours seeing something weird and just entertainingly <laughs> weird. And it's as, it's as simple as that for me. The stories, I don't really care about the stories. I don't really care about the mechanics either. They, they're they fine and they're well made and they're good and, and some people like them. But for me, it's just about the the virtual artistic spaces uh, and the music. And obviously, I'm a massive music fan. The music's fantastic. And music runs throughout everything. There's DJs and there's musicians and there's music notes on the wall and music informs costuming and decoration and it's just there's so much music stuff in here that it's very richly rewarding as well from that point of view if you are a musician um, of traditional instruments I think you'd find a lot of this quite funny like seeing dancing cellos and uh, (laughs) and all of that and trying to steal a prized saxophone and then turning around and his robot family is there staring at you and all of that all those kind of (laughs) gags and stuff Um, just fun just yeah just brilliant fun thank you very much and I will take us out. Um, during the same trip to New Mexico that I mentioned up uh, earlier in the show, in which I visited Meow Wolf in Santa Fe, uh, I also went to one of the 
modern art museums and encountered a, I think it was a 2011 piece of art uh, video that was filmed in New York City called Street, uh, in which the artist used a used the type of camera that they used to photograph hummingbirds um, and to see their wings in, you have to go so slow to get the wings of a hummingbird flapping. Um, they, it captures hundreds and hundreds of frames per second and um, basically just kind of like hung this camera outside of his car and just drove down the middle of the street in the middle of New York city and just kind of captured these ultra slow motion tableaus of the people of the city, people in city spaces kind of blur together more often than not when you're just kind of out there going about your day and living. But if you actually slow down the moment and see everyone has their own kind of story attached to them and everyone has their own trajectory, things that they're thinking of, things that they're doing, ways that they're interacting with other people. It's a very dense picture. It's kind of like a like a Where's Waldo where everywhere you look, like something mm-hmm. different is is going on in some sort of a, you know, funny inter- interconnection between people. I became kind of fixated on that particular piece of art. Uh, it took me years to actually track down like a downloadable video of the of the art installation for myself, which I, I have now. I'm very happy about that. Um, but uh, I, I was always kind of focused on featuring that as kind of like a centerpiece element of um, at my wedding, which I had back in October of 2021. When I played Tales from Moth Peak City, like that, that hit such like the same resonant note for me as that piece of art did. And I think it is because the the way that the music is written feels so urban and so vital it has like such a such a life to it but such like an urban feeling in that as you're walking through the city conversations and sounds and music and you know the insides of buildings like everything kind of fades into and out of attention and you kind of get this 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 trajectory uh through your sonic experience of moving through a space. And I think that a lot of Cosmo D and Archie Pelago's music contains that same kind of movement. Um, you know, different instruments kind of come into the mix and leave the mix and are replaced by other instruments and different motifs and motifs will reoccur and sometimes they'll be dropped. And it, it's just such like dynamic music that has such a spatial feeling, which makes its translation into this kind of exploration-based video game, very natural and very fitting. So I ended up using actually a lot of, uh, a lot of Cosmo D's music uh, at my wedding, <laughs> and it kind of informed a lot of the like, aesthetic choices that I made for that event. So you know, I can at least give it that endorsement that it meant enough to me to, uh, to be a part of a very important <laughs> part of my life, <laughs> a very important event in my life. So I'll just say that like, as far as creating like a contiguous space, like these spaces are absurd, maximalist and non-Euclidean in a lot of ways, but, but they have so much life and you get the sense that like behind every door, there's so many stories to be told and there's so much diversity in these cities. Uh, there's really nothing else like them. I really like Betrayal at Club Low, but for me, I'm an exploration first gamer. I'm not a mechanics first gamer. Like my my first love is always being in these worlds. So, you know, I think that Norwood especially and also Tales, those are the ones that stick with me the most. 
I, I return to play them at least once a year. I can't wait to see what else is what else is coming up in the future. You know, I'm I'm definitely going to keep my eye on whatever Cosmo D creates. I'll be there day one for all of these releases again in the future. And um I hope to just have more wonderful places to explore and mu- more beautiful music to accompany me along my way. So that's my journey through Cosmo D's trilogy, and that is our discussion of a very strange collection of games. As you may notice, we didn't get any correspondence, neither three-word reviews nor actual written correspondences this time around. And I think it is just because these are a little bit more under the radar than the types of games that we typically cover. But I hope that, I, I mean, I guess if anyone has stuck with us this long in the podcast, then I hope it has at least inspired some curiosity and uh, you'll be interested in trying these games out. I can't recommend them enough. Um, so thanks for listening. I will, uh, I'll just close out by saying it remains for me, Ryan, to thank Chris, James, and Thomas, as well as you, the listener. We would like to encourage you to take another little amble with us in a very different stylized world of Year Walk in issue 552 next week. Music